this morning, the title of the message is Be Steadfast. And um, one of the questions is, this is we're, we're starting in 5.11, 1 Thessalonians. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing, Paul says. Now, that's not a big text. But why do we need to be encouraged in our, our faith in the Lord Jesus? Well, if you've been paying attention lately, you'll see that we, the church, are not doing very well. Uh, this past fall, I went to our annual meeting and uh, one of the guys that spoke there did a workshop. This guy named Dave Olson. Dana Olson is his brother he used to head up the prayer ministry in our uh, conference some of you might recognize that name but dave his brother also works for the covenant church and he was running a workshop and uh, he had been using some statistics that i went and looked up and in an article entitled seven startling facts a close-up look at church attendance in america written by kelly shattuck uh, the article quotes dave and it says that So if you look at the Gallup polls, it says, while Gallup polls and others show church attendance in America to be at 40%, his research, Dave's, shows that the numbers are closer to 20%. The actual figure being 17.7. Okay, now those of you who are over 40, think back to the America you knew. Think back to what church attendance was. Think about uh, you had... The Catholic Church, you had the mainline denominations, right? The Presbyterians and all. You had all that stuff going. Think of what's happened in the last 40 years. 17.7%. That's why Jesus says when he comes back, will he find any faith on the earth? If this were going to keep going at this pace by 2050, isn't that sound weird? 2050, that doesn't sound so far away anymore. Remember when that was, you know, hell you know, kind of outer twilight zone, you know, kind of stuff. And uh, Space Odyssey 2000, you know, that was way out there in the future. But 2050, attendance would be half of what it is today. So in other words, it'd be down to about uh, 11 to 9%. I want you to just ponder it. I know that's not what you were thinking about when you walked in this morning. Add to that, this isn't the only discouraging thing. Um, Even within the Christian community itself, there's pockets and so many have quit. They're now called, uh, if you've read Christianity Today, they're called the Duns. The the Duns mean they're done with church, right? And it's a huge uh, segment. They're just completely opting out. And I think all of us, to some extent, are asking the question, all right, Without a fresh work from the Lord, how far can this thing go on like this? Right? And when we look at the Thessalonian church, recognize that there were pressures back then too. There weren't a whole lot of people in church in, during the time of Thessalonica either. Matter of fact, the church was just being born. And when it bo- got born, most people didn't agree with it and they got beat up. There were a lot of pressures. They faced a lot of external pressures, rioting, beatings, threats. But then also they had a lot of internal pressures, just like we do. Uh, Discouragements. The Thessalonians had experienced the death of loved ones, uh, confusion and doubt about how they thought things were going to go. And so Paul is writing, and it must be remembered when he writes 1 Thessalonians, he's writing to encourage them. He's writing to encourage their faith. Remember, this is the only method they had. He couldn't text them. He couldn't email them. 
He couldn't Skype him. He couldn't, you know, hey, check my blog. Okay, he couldn't do any of that. All right? He's down in Corinth. He has to send a letter, and this letter is the only thing they've got that's to encourage them in the faith. And uh, he commends them on three things. He commends them on their faith. He said, we know about your faith. We've watched your faith, hang with your faith. He commends them on their labor of love. It was evident that they were um, pitching in hard for Jesus on all kinds of different fronts. But then the third one is the one I want to talk about this morning. He encourages them. You can really roll by this really quick in Thessalonians. He encourages them in the steadfastness, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They were, in spite of all of that, holding steadfast. And there's a tremendous need today to stay steadfast. And this is where I took the title for the message today, Be Steadfast. We can also include a fourth one. Uh, he says that their testimony was ringing out all over the peninsula, what we call Greece today. But it was ringing and people were talking about him. So don't quit talking because you've got a really good reputation in a lot of other places. You don't even know it. But I've been going around the peninsula and they are reporting to me what you're doing up there and it's a really good thing. So when it comes to our faith in the Lord Jesus, the whole idea of encouraging each other and building each other up has to do with encouraging each other to keep going. Anybody ever get tired? Want to quit? Right? To persevere. These beautiful words that we love. Perseverance. Right? If you're a coach, you love that word. Perseverance. Persevere in there, team. Right? To hang in there. To not quit. In other words... The capsulate, be steadfast. Hold your ground. Steadfast in our faith in Jesus. Paul says steadfast in your love for Jesus. Steadfast in your hope in Jesus. Are all the things that he's talking about that are every bit as necessary today for us right now in 2.15 as it was for them. As I mentioned this week, First Thessalonians has been, uh, the Thessalonians have been thrown into turmoil both emotionally and theologically by the death of the loved believers around them. And Paul's admonition was to keep encouraging each other in the faith and to build up. Likewise, our goal at Northview is also to encourage people to become and to keep becoming more like Jesus by celebrating God, serving one another, and sharing God's love with our world. That in the pursuit of Him, we would be built up in Him. Right? And I like that word pursuit. There's a, a local group, Russ Johnson is the pastor of it. And the name of the church is called The Pursuit. And I just went, why had I never thought of that? If I had to start over, I would have rebranded Northview and called it The Pursuit. Pursuing, isn't that a just cool picture? The Pursuit. But to pursue Jesus. The pursuit of Him, we would be built up in Him. That we'd be built up just like Paul wanted the Thessalonians to be built up and encouraged. And when you're talking about built up, what is that, what's the thought behind that. I'm looking at Matt Comstock. He's a carpenter. He, he understands that. Those of you who work construction, built up means to shore up what is lacking. Right? You ever do a remodel job? Right? You are building up in the project there what's lacking. To make something stronger than what it already is. To expand on the original foundation. You're building it up. Not leaving it as it was. You're uh, building upon it. So the goal this morning is that we do the same thing. Build up and encourage each other in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray and then we'll start. Lord, as we use these thoughts this morning to get us thinking in a direction, 
we recognize that it's you who make us steadfast. That our ability to stand is directly proportional to our closeness to you. And Lord, we seek you this morning. Uh, We come, we look pretty similar, but we may be in very different places. Some of us may be faint in heart this morning. Some of us may be in fear. Some of us may be coming in with a great deal of question and uncertainty. Some of us um, don't know what next week will look like. Some of us don't know what our marriage will look like. Some of us don't know what's going to happen to our kids. There's all kinds of levels where we can be rocked off our foundation and not be steadfast to let fear take over. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would banish fear and that you would let people know you never will leave us, you'll never forsake us. You never left the Thessalonians, neither will you ever leave us. As we walk through this morning, there's some ideas that connect to our world, that world where I am in on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, away from here, that you'll connect some ideas that are practical that will be helpful to us about how to be steadfast towards you. And we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. Okay. So if you haven't yet, turn to the First Thessalonians. We're picking up in chapter 5. We're starting with verse 8. And uh, we are going to start with a whopper of a text. There you go. You didn't think that was funny? That's little. Hello. All right, you guys aren't as awake as I thought. Okay. It says this, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. I want to explore this idea a little bit with us because it's got a bunch of punch for our uh, world today. The strong admonition here is to not be drunk. Right? The opposite of sober is drunk. Certainly this was a factor in the ancient world as it is in our world today. Drunkenness, when you think about it, strips a person of the ability to have self-control when it's most needed. For example, driving a car. Right? Hard, if you're drunk, to do what you're supposed to do operating a vehicle at 60 or 70 miles an hour. Right? Uh, there was a uh, thing on MSN this week about one of the congressional staff people trying to park their car, right? Some of you saw that. Uh, it can be a challenge, all right? Um, but in other things too, um, for example, holding your tongue appropriately. If you're drunk and tension rises in your marriage and suddenly there's a fight, you tend to say things you should never say. And once you say them, can you take them back? No, right? And um, And so... You know, where's the line on all this? Well, first of all, there are different kinds of drunkenness. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, Well, let me give you one example of how I think as a culture we're drunk, right? And it's not alcohol. I think this one uh, probably is a bigger problem than alcohol itself. Um, In our culture, it is easy to be drunk on entertainment. Think about that. Think about the incredible options there are that exist in our world right now, this second. You can be doing all kinds of things on your phone while I'm speaking. You could be Googling, you could be texting, you could be Skyping, you could be uh, checking out all kinds of, right? I mean, the walls of where entertainment never used to cross or invade, now it can invade. And so, um, life becomes about amusing myself 
and drinking in all that entertains me. And boy, in our culture, there's a lot of flavors, aren't there? There's a lot of stuff that says, taste me. I will fill you. Taste me. I will keep you from being bored. You bored with life? Come this way. We will keep your mind preoccupied. You'll never have to think about that again. Now, where is the line between appropriate entertainment and being drunk with entertainment? Well, I suggest you it's the same kind of thing as with drinking alcohol. There's a line in there somewhere, right? And it's hard to find that line. How is this like being drunk? Well, when it comes to entertainment, because when I go too far, wherever that is, when I go too far, I'm no longer paying any attention to the important things around me. I'm only thinking of myself, and I am addicted or drunk to my fun. In other words, now instead of my responsibilities tell me what I have to do, my entertainment, my fun becomes the priority priority of what I make my choices of. And it's now not just like a drunk. It's not a matter of having some entertainment. I now have to be entertained. Matter of fact, that's gotten almost uh, epidemic in church. If you don't entertain me, I don't come back. Right? And so there are entire ministries built on entertaining people um, because otherwise they would be bored. A person who is drunk spends all his money on his drunk. Right? Just like a person who is drunk on entertainment spends all their money on their entertainment. For a drunk, money that should go to bills, washing machines, tires, mortgages. Uh, they've done studies in areas um, where that happens and they just show the impoverishment that exists in the areas where that happens, uh, it now goes to the drunk. This is a, this is a well-established fact. This is not something we don't know. Well, how does that work when one gets drunk on entertainment? Well, I want to suggest the same thing. The money that should go to useful things goes to toys. Now, uh, they can be all kinds of toys, right? It, uh, and having some, there's nothing wrong with having some toys. But where's the line between I have some things that entertain me versus I live for being entertained. That's what we're talking about here. It goes for toys, usually electronic toys these days. In my home, uh, the TV can be on and the iPad is, one kid's holding the iPad, the other kid's holding a phone and and they're, they're all going all simultaneously. Have you experienced that? And I'm like, shut it off, right? The same thing happens here. What goes missing, or we should ask the question, what goes missing if we're drunk on entertaining ourselves? Right? We know what, hap- what, we know what goes missing if I'm drunk with alcohol, right? The jokes of the town drunk and what happens to a family like that. that we're, that's well established. That was the beating boy of the childs of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, right? What, what, is, what goes missing if I'm drunk on entertainment? Well, think through a few of these questions with me and see if they don't resonate with you. If I'm drunk on entertainment, who has time for neighbors? Matter of fact, I never get outside to see my neighbors because they get in the way of my entertainment. Um, Who has time to read the Word? 
right? We can watch hours of entertainment in the form of television, movies. That, but boy, 15 minutes in the Word, man, you're grinding me, dude. Right? Um, I thought of some other ones that have changed since. I was thinking, okay, so I was thinking back to the early 80s here. Sorry. Um, if I'm drunk on entertainment, who visits the sick? Who visits the elderly? Well, why would they need visiting? They have entertainment now too, so they don't need anybody to visit. Right. Who has time to pray? Hey, honey, where'd the tithe money go? If those don't work, try this one on. How about the attention that should go closer to the bullseye that's supposed to go to our loved ones, like our wives? I'll use the men here so the rest of us get off the hook. What about the attention that's supposed to go to our wives or our children? Uh, Dad doesn't talk to me. He's busy. And lastly, I thought about what about the lost? Those who don't know Christ, who shares with them if we're all being entertained to the point of distraction? Now, I'm not interested in guilt trip Israel. I'm interested in raising a point. There are different kinds of drunkenness. There are different kinds of things that grab us, and there's lines in there. Where, where are the lines? While you're thinking about that, back to being sober, uh, the question may well be asked, if we are to be sober... What is Norfu's policy on drinking alcohol? There are usually two camps on either end of the spectrum on this, if you think it through and you know what they are already. Camp number one, uh, no alcohol period. Uh, And by the way, there are some very good reasons for this position, including weight, (laughs) example, health, avoiding making bad decisions, and risk putting yourself in possible danger, i.e., if you don't walk where snakes are, you can't get bit. Right? My wife would endorse that one. I.e., if you never drink, you never have to worry about getting drunk and the requisite fallout that attends such behavior. And so there's a camp that says you should never touch alcohol. Jesus never touched alcohol. The disciples never touched alcohol. Nobody ever touches alcohol. If you touch alcohol, it's of the devil and demon rum and you, you come from that camp, right? There's that side. There's the camp two, which is on the complete other side of the spectrum, that's the freedom camp. We have our freedom, and we won't let anyone impinge upon our freedom. Uh, taken to the extreme, uh, this is the form of let's throw a kegger at church to support our ministry. All right? So you have those, those exist. Hello, right? They're out there. Um, I prefer the middle. And here's the middle. Moderation with discretion. The Bible doesn't say don't drink. It says don't get drunk. Now, in saying that, it does give really strong warnings about the dangers and the fallout. If you want to check it out, check out Noah, Lot, Jacob, Nabal as examples, along with the end of Proverbs 23 and many other scriptures like that, right? It does speak against that. Having said that, Moderation with discretion puts the onus on personal responsibility and self-control. And again, conscience. Isn't that funny? The Bible actually thinks we have a conscience. 
And the Bible actually thinks it can be followed. That's a novel idea and thought in this day and era. That we actually have a conscience that we can be developed and we need to follow it. Now, we don't have an official written policy, and I suppose after this we'll probably have to come up with one. All right? <laughs> but the be- as best stated at Norfew, coming from Steve himself, the issue of drinking alcohol is a matter of conscience. We're not going to legislate it. All right? It's a matter of conscience. We expect each believer to operate in obedience to what his conscience, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, allows or does not allow them to do in this area, with the admonition from Romans 14 that in, keep an eye out for the weaker brother and don't cause him to stumble, and whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you doubt, don't. Okay? You hear what I'm saying? If you doubt, don't. Because you don't have a clear conscience on it. If you have a freedom in conscience in that, then discretion with moderation. If the Holy Spirit tells you no, then you must follow the admonition that many of you have heard me say from across my desk, which is this. Others may, you may not. And I get just like four-year-old kids. That's not fair. I said, who's talking about fair? The Lord of the universe has talked to you. What has he told you? You can't. You can't have one. One takes you over the edge and down. And look what's happened the last three weeks. It's a wreck. You can't do it. Others may. Well, why can they? I can't. Because you're not them. God didn't talk to them about it. They're fine. They're not out of control. You for you, it's a deadly area. You may not. Can I suggest this morning that God has the right and the wisdom to tell you no? Now, this is on anything, right? We're talking about alcohol here. But God has the wisdom and the right to tell you no. If the Holy Spirit tells you yes, then enjoy your freedom. But with discretion and wisdom. Don't use your freedom to wreck another believer. Having said that, I also want to make it very clear that Norfolk as a ministry is an alcohol-free zone. All right? And what I mean by that is within the walls of this building or within the umbrella of ministries that operate under our official banner, no alcohol will be served. Does that make sense? There's just too many things that can be wrecked, too many things that can fall apart. You don't know who you're working with and it's just not something we want to come close to. Other ministries don't have that, right? And that's okay because they have diff- they're, they're called to different things. And I'm done... Uh, calling into judgment everybody who does something different than us, right? I'm going, they have, they have freedom too, we don't, right? And I think part of uh, being a good shepherd in that is knowing the balance, all right? But that's all set up. Uh, I want to move into the second half of the admonition because that's what Paul's talking about. Because we're light, because we're supposed to be sober for a reason, and that's this. He says, be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet for the hope of salvation. This is the first place where Paul uses this very vivid Roman illustration of a Roman soldier and what they wear. Uh, Most of us are familiar in Ephesians 6, right? Put on the full armor of God. And we think that's where it comes from. But actually, this is the first place Paul pulls it from. Ephesians 6, he develops it much more. It becomes much more intricate. Uh, The 
the breastplate becomes the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit and right and the helmet of salvation. You guys got all those pictures. But this is the first one where he uses it, the very first time he tried to express it. And he calls it the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So the Thessalonians, he's saying, dress yourself with these, protect yourself with these. The Thessalonians would have got it because they were a key Roman city and a key Roman outpost. They kind of would have known what a Roman soldier looked like. And they themselves had been involved in multiple battles, so they would have known how it worked. So let's start with the breastplate. In the verse, Paul calls the breastplate the breastplate of faith and love. And the idea of this breastplate uh, is that it is for the protection of the heart. In other words, it was usually made uh, in some, it was made of leather or it was made of bronze, uh, which is what made the Romans such an intimidating army because when they walked, they would self-polish themselves, all right? If you read up about this, as the army walked and moved, they had different moving parts and as they walked, it would self-polish itself. And if you've ever seen polished bronze and see what it does in the sunlight, like for example, marching bands, you ever see the sunlight ricochet off the tubas? Right? Whoa! Okay. Well, that's what the whole army looked like moving towards the enemy. All of a sudden, lights reflecting, and, and wow, and it would just freak everybody out. And sometimes they didn't even have to fight because of that. Well, in the same way, Paul saying that breastplate, when it reflects, protects your heart from an enemy who throws deadly, deadly arrows at us. And he's telling the Thessalonians to be protected in that way. There were two fronts that they were vulnerable on or being attacked on. One was uh, their faith was severely challenged to the point of panic, heart anxiety, right? They thought they'd got theology wrong or misread something and they were suddenly panicked. And the second one, they were grieving. Are you vulnerable when you're grieving? Boy, we are, aren't we? You know, some of us in this room probably have not yet at this stage of our life had what I call a direct hit. Well, you know, if you read something on the, uh, for example, we probably read this week about the pilot who got locked out of the cockpit and the co-pilot deliberately and intentionally crashed the plane, killing everybody on the plane. How horrific if that's your family, right? But if you're over here in America reading that, that's over there. How awful, but it doesn't really affect you. Um, you know, if you think of um, accidents or things like that happen. But a direct hit is somebody close to you. A direct hit is a mom, a dad, uh, a beloved aunt, a beloved uncle, uh, a mentor, uh, a pastor, or someone who really had an impact on your life. And when they die, uh, maybe you've had a best friend die. All right? uh, when they die, it rattles you. On the outside, you look fine. And after two weeks, everybody else keeps moving along. And you look long. How are you doing? Fine. Right? But inside, it takes a long time to process that. It takes a long time to overcome that. And that's what the Thessalonians were, were battling. They were grieving. And Satan loves to find points of panic or grief and then in there. Just think of what he said to the Thessalonians. Oh, that God, he failed to show up. Oh, no, 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 no. He's still going to come, but but your husband or wife doesn't get to go along. They died. That's so sad. 
Oh, but you, you, yeah, you get to go to heaven. Don't worry, it'll be all right. You don't have to worry about them. They're just dead. Right? Have you ever heard how Satan works? Right? He picks. He picks and he, he works to tell you you missed it, you're stupid, you're dumb. And he goes after your self-esteem. He goes after the pictures he had. Um, or the other way he'll pick is to say, what kind of God is that that would let your loved one die? I thought he was good. I thought he died on the cross and rose again from the dead, so nobody had to die. How could he let that die? How could he let your marriage die? How could he do that? You know what a lot of Christians are saying non-verbally? I'll say it for you so you don't. If I get hit with lightning, you know I shouldn't have said it. All right? Here's what we're really saying. God, if you're so great, if you're so good, if you're so awesome, if you're so real, if you're so present, you're doing all this, why don't you get off your dead ass and get up and do something? You hear the shock in the room right now? You're more worried that I said ass than <laughs> did something. That people are actually saying that. That's what we're really saying, though. That's what the Thessalonians, why? Because Satan loves to go at that. Paul says, you've got to keep the breastplate on. What's the breastplate? Two things, love. Look at what Paul says here. The breastplate of love and faith. It is so easy to lose faith. It is so easy to get rattled. It is so easy to look at circumstances and let them throw you into the ditch. And that was not only true for the Thessalonians. Is that not true for us? You know, we sing, we sing these songs, uh, I Will Never Be Shaken. I just howl when we sing. It's a great song. I love the song. It's, it speaks of God's steadfastness towards us, but we are like uh, quaking aspens. You ever seen quaking aspens? Everything shakes us. Okay? The slightest breeze. If you've ever seen a... Oh, Colorado's got this. It's just beautiful. But they have groves of quaking aspen. And the slightest breeze in the whole grove starts to shimmer and shake. We're like that as Christians. Right? Paul's saying, no, be, be protected. Keep on the breastplate of faith and love. In other words, you don't take that thing off. The other thing that he talks to them about is uh, the helmet. Right? The helmet... Just like the breastplate, the faith is he will come back for you. He's not going to renege on his promises. Trust him. Hang in there. It may look like that temporarily, but this is temporary. Understand Jesus' promises are eternal. And secondly, uh, keep your hearts guarded by the love of God. God loves you. And that is as true this morning as it was for the Thessalonians. We have to remind ourselves, God loves me. He didn't bring me this far to kill me. All right? Then he goes on to the helmet. The helmet here, um, and you look at it, it's the helmet of the hope of salvation. That's an interesting way to put it. Helmets are for protection, the protection of our mind. What guards our mind? It's God's word and God's promises. One of the great things that uh, God's word does is remind us of God's promises towards us. And for this message, I was looking up hope, uh, the hope of salvation, right? And so I started love hope, and I started going through all the promises of hope that are, and I went, I got overwhelmed. I was like, wow, I had 40 of them I wanted to give you this morning. Realized that probably wouldn't work in a 30-minute message, right? Ah! But it was incredible. When you stack them all together and you just read them, they kind of sequence themselves, and you really come away realizing that hope is a huge thing that God wants to hand out to us, a huge thing that he wants us to hold on to. 
When we get away from the word, we can make what seem like some really right choices that turn out really bad. And, and then we can lose hope. And we can also lose hope when we forget to remind ourselves of what the promises are. Um, I had a, a friend, a friend, a person I've known for a long time, call me this week uh, and said, my face faltering. I, I, I've almost lost hope. Exact words. And we started to go back and we started to back up and, and walk through some things and they thought this situation is God and this situation is of God and this situation is of God. And if you've ever been in one of those where someone's talking to you and they're telling you how God let all this, these were from God and you realize as soon as they're telling those weren't from God at all. How do I know? Because they didn't match up with Scripture at all. And so I started thinking, well, could we back up a little bit? Could we walk through that and pull that apart a little bit? And then she went, oh, yeah, you're right. That wasn't of God. Well, then what about this one? Oh, that wasn't of God either. Now, she went from Hawaii to Colorado. Long story, can't explain it. By herself, okay? Hoping that a, quote, fiancé would follow her. I said, did it ever occur to you that God got you to Colorado to get you away from him? God was evil. He's abusive. She said, I never thought of that. How about the fact that you actually got there, why you thought you were going, and the motives you got there, what you thought were, are different than why God got you there, but you actually did what God wanted you to do, and now you're finding a place to really understand God brought you here to protect you, not to hurt you. And she went, oh. And then I started reminding her of who she was in the Lord. I said, look, you've known him for a long time. Go back to Jesus. Go back to first base. I used the baseball illustration with her about you can't run over to second first. Didn't work. She doesn't know baseball. <laughs> Sat with her, walked her through, kept getting her hope. She called back an hour later. She said, Steve, I want to thank you. She said, I'm back on track. She said, I wrote him, told him to stay in Hawaii. I said, till he gets his act together. Because I, I just told her how precious she is in the eyes of the Lord, how valuable she is. And so I wrote, said, unless you can treat me the way I should be treated as a daughter of Jesus, stay in Hawaii. And she said, you know what? I got a job. I'm going to look for a better job. And she said, I'm going to connect with a fellowship and I'm going to get a group of posse and I'm going to get a, some believers around me and let them do for me what you just did for me. And I'm going to get my feet back on the ground again. Is that awesome news or what? She had gotten her helmet off. She had lost the hope of her salvation. She had forgotten what Jesus had actually done for her. And just in the talking and the telling and reminding of her, she was rekindled to put the armor back on. Helmets are important not only for protection, but I want to suggest something else this morning. They also serve a very important, another very important purpose. They let you know what team you're on. You can tell what team you belong to by the helmet you wear. Isn't that true? Right? I mean, think about this as uh, we're talking about, uh, think football for a second. All right? I know it's basketball, March Madness, two of my four teams are in the final four. Yes, awesome, here we go. But we're back to football, all right? Seahawks, here we go. Come on, is anybody else besides me going to have just a little bit of a shift problem seeing Jimmy Graham in a Seattle helmet? I loved it when he was the Saints. We, made, we smoked him. We dunked him. We stopped him. We, we shut him down. It was awesome. Gunky on you, Saints, right? Now he's going to be a Seattle. Now notice I said a little. 
Because now he's a hawk. Awesome. This is good, right? You know, that's just like the Christian life. How your enemies become your best friends. Because Jesus puts a different helmet on them. What is it that's the helmet of salvation? He has left one team to join another team. He can no longer wear a saint's helmet. Now, I thought about that. This is a little ironic, using that in this setting, because now that he's one of us, he's no longer a saint. I I was thinking about that, right? All right, weird. Because he now belongs to a different team. Right? He's now a Seahawk. And Paul's saying, you are no longer of the world. You now wear the armor of the kingdom of God. You are now a saint because you have the helmet of the hope of salvation on. And that's what it do. And there's a good question this morning. What helmet are you wearing? Maybe not so much in here because it would be. But as you go through the, your week, your life, what helmet are you wearing? Whose team do you identify with? Here's a couple different teams. Are, you, are we wearing the helmet of sin? Right. Does your sin identify you? More than the hope of salvation identifies you. Am I wearing the helmet of the world? I'm, I'm, like I said this morning, identified by the entertainment that I do, not by Jesus. Am I wearing the helmet of me? I'm my own team. I don't need a team. I'm fine. I'm team me. You ever heard somebody say that? Right? I'm that team. I could be wearing that helmet. Or am I wearing the helmet of Christ? I am a child of God. I decided as they throw me in prison, I've told you this, but I want to reemphasize it. I got two statements I want to make. Number one, I'm a follower of Christ. Number two, the Bible's the word of God. You can take everything else and throw it out the window. But I was redeemed by Jesus. How do you know that? Well, I met him at a powdered milk factory at three in the morning. So end of discussion. That's where I go. All right. I wear that helmet. Who or what am I placing my hope in? Right? And that's a floating target as you become an adult. Because all kinds of things, my home, my children, all that stuff comes floating in on that. But what guards our minds is our hope in Christ and His promises. And His promises haven't gotten weak just because it's 2.15. Trust me. Go in the Word this week. Start looking up the promises of God and you'll find out they're every bit as fresh as they were for the Thessalonians. Your hope, your helmet, both protects and identifies what team you're on. Our faith in Jesus' love for us gives us hope. I was instantly brought to this uh, couple verses in Hebrews 6. It's on my, Kayla wrote it on my uh, board upstairs, so I look at it often. It says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise... The unchangeable character of his purpose. That's a statement in and of itself. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. By the way, why shouldn't we lie? Because God doesn't lie. And we can bank on his promises because he doesn't lie. We who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. See that part there where it says, hold fast to the hope set before us? You know, if you ever played football, you understand this. In football, what did the coach always tell you? Keep your helmet on. 
Right? Keep your helmet on, chin strap on. Right? This is saying the same thing. Hold fast to the hope set before you. Keep your helmet on. Keep the helmet of salvation of hope on. Why? Because if you don't, you're going to get your bell rung. Now you can say, well, you get your bell rung even you're wearing a helmet. Yeah, but think if you got rung that way without the helmet. Okay? It's one thing to get tagged if you got the helmet on. It's another thing if you don't have a helmet at all. We can get really brutally knocked out if we aren't wearing the helmet of salvation. All right. Paul goes on to say, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. This verse is often read out of context and is misunderstood. When most Christians read this, we are not destined for wrath. They think it means awesome. I'm protected. Nothing bad can happen to me. That is not what it is saying. We are destined for all kinds of trials and tribulations in Christ. Peter says we shouldn't be surprised at the fire ordeal we're going through. Jesus says we'll be handed over. What it is saying is that we will not be destined for wrath. The eternal wrath of God is to be avoided at all costs. As was stated last week, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31. If you're on the wrong side of the equation, Scripture warns, flee to Jesus, seek refuge in him while he may be found. And Paul is saying that to the Thessalonians. For God has not destined us for wrath. Yeah, you're going to go through problems. But you're going to make it all the way through. So then he comes back to this. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing. As we come towards Easter, as we come towards Good Friday, we head into the year. Last encouragement from Paul, don't do it alone. Notice that's what he's saying to the Thessalonians. Don't do life alone. Remember Tammy's story. How did she get so messed up? She was trying to do it all by herself and all just her reads. You can misinterpret stuff by yourself. You need some posse, some friends. Don't do it alone. Our strong encouragement over the last year at Norfolk is to have a posse, a group you ride with. We call them community groups. And our stated goal is that every person who attends Norfolk would be part of a community group. Why? Because you need posse. You need people to encourage you, to remind you, to hang in there. You know, you can do that this morning. If you go in the bulletin, there's a card. You can join online. You can go to the welcome desk. But uh, how you sign up is important. What's important that you do sign up. All right, we've run out of time. We need to pray. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. Here's this. We're a community, just like Paul's saying. We need to stand together. We need to encourage each other. The best way to do that is in small groups. Join a community group if you haven't. You've been sitting on the outside saying, boy, that's nice. I'm glad some people are doing that. Why don't you become one of the people that are doing that? Find out there's great stories coming out of it, great encouragements people are having by being part of a community group. Let's pray together. Fathers, we seek you. Your love, your faith for us, your encouragement for us is very powerful and you ask us to stand in those, to be protected by that. Paul used some of the best thoughts that have ever been crafted and brought it out for a church that was going through difficult things. Lord, may your word speak life to us as we are here in 215 the same way. We ask for this in your name. Amen.